Hey folks, welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here. I'm so glad. Oh, nerding out a little bit, just nerding out. I'm so excited, y'all, to bring Dr. Joe Court to you, sex and relationship therapist. I have I have been in trainings with Dr. Joe Court. I, I cannot wait to start talking with you, Joe. <laughs> welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for such a great introduction. I'm glad to be here. Today is all about male sexuality. We're going to talk about some tough stuff. All you male identified folks out there, get ready. Strap in. <laughs> On? Strap in. I'm um, So what would you say is the biggest myth around male sexuality? Well, the first thing I always say is that we only talk about male sexuality when men are in trouble. So they have to be perpetrators. They have to be sex offenders. They have to be sexually abused. Or they have to be experiencing what the culture calls sexual addiction but what I call out-of-control sexual behaviors, where they're in some kind of a situation where they get caught by a partner and uh, or the law or something, and then everybody's happy to talk to him about his sexuality, but when it's about sexual pleasure, people stop. Whew! Oh my gosh. We're gonna, <laughs> this just you just opened the biggest box. And I'm so I'm just so glad that you were saying this. Having done sex offender treatment myself, you are absolutely completely right. We do not talk to men about sex and they have so many even beliefs around their own sexuality. I, I mean, I know you work with clients and, and you do lots of speaking and, and trainings. Like, what do you see with many of your, your male identified clients as far as some of the biggest myths they believe about themselves? Well, there's so much stigma too, you know, so I, I always say this, that when men have one non-heterosexual thought, they're stigmatized. And when women have one non-heterosexual thought, they're fetishized. So women have all this wiggle room and never have to worry, not the never, but they less worry about, am I gay? Am I bi? Am I straight? They are allowed some flexibility and fluidity where men aren't. So I end up getting a lot of those clients where they may have some sexual attraction or interest in some man or some gay sex even. And um, then they're freaked out. Like they automatically think they're gay. Yes. Yes. And there's so many messages in our culture that you can't do that because it might look gay in quotation marks when it has nothing to do, like absolutely nothing to do with their sexuality or it can raise this level of shame that, that is so like, I think chains them. Yeah. And they don't talk to each other about it. They may joke about it. There's locker room talk about it, but there's nothing real about it. And so they don't know what's normal, what's not normal, and what's different for male sexuality than women. And this could be learned. I'm not saying it's biological or innate, but women tend to be sexually more relational, where men are more, they objectify and body parts and fantasies. And our culture is un- doesn't accept that. The whole thing about don't objectify me. Well, you know, I don't know if you know Esther Perel. Do you know her? Yes, it's a bro. I love her. And she said something so profound. I mean, to me, it was profound that you can't be sexual with a partner unless at some moments you're objectifying them so that you can do the kinds of things we do sexually. So there's this taboo, um, which makes it hot, but then also makes it forbidden. So men are just left out at sea with this. 
Yes. I feel like it's a grand setup almost, right? Like, <laughs> like, oh, you can like that, but don't like that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So then they just don't talk about it. And so then what men do too, is they don't want to hurt their partners, especially heterosexual men do not want to hurt women around what they like, what they don't like. They already have a sensibility that she's going to feel it's personal or that you're comparing her. So they don't talk. The women find their porn or hear something about their fantasies. I've had women say in my office, you're either a sex addict or you're a pervert and I'm not staying married to a pervert. So you better be a sex addict. It's horrible. Right. Like, and it doesn't allow for, I, I so often with my clients and I know, I know you have seen this with yours over, over the years that it, the dynamic of the warden and the keeper is not sexy. <laughs> like I catch you. I'm, I caught you with your, your terrible things. Like that, that, that dynamic does not provide for like a wonderful context for sex. I really love that warden and keeper. And I agree. So I always tell clients, I'm not working with you on those circumstances. You're two adults and most heterosexual couples do not have sexual health conversations like gay and lesbian couples do. So by the time they, they hit something sexual that they've never talked about, it becomes a betrayal. Yes. You like her more than you like me when like, especially that's one of the things that I hear in the dynamic around porn with some of my couples it's you you must want her more than or want someone that looks like her than you like me and it and it's it's such a it's such an adversarial dynamic I had this couple, I call them the tiny waist couple. He was very attracted to her when they first met because he was attracted to women with very tiny waists and she had a very tiny waist. And so they had lots of sex, they fall in love and they got married. And then over 40 years, her waist expanded, children, menopause, whatever happened. He loved her. They continued having good sex. He, he enjoyed her body. She enjoyed his. Everything was fine until she found his porn. And in his porn were what? women with tiny waists. So now she's one of those women that said, you're either a sex addict or you're a pervert. And they came to my office and she's crying uncontrollably on my couch. And she's saying, what does all of this say about me? And I say to her in the best, kindest, therapeutic way, repeatedly, nothing. It's apples and oranges. Yes. It says nothing. I, I feel like something has happened in our culture generally that the, it's like the combination of the lack of any education around pleasure around our bodies and then how women's bodies are treated in the media and the expectation. Like these two things have come together like in a storm. And it comes in, in the relationship dynamic and it's all fear. It's not one or the other. It's all fear. It's all fear. And like you said, comparison. And it's not that men don't do that too. So women will tend to, you know, say, um, why don't you just want me? And her relational language is about her where males, boys are taught not to be relational to even eliminate their relational vocabulary. So then where he languages, his attachment is through sex and through his penis. So I've had guys be jealous of their wives' uh, vibrators and say to her, literally, my dick is available to you 24-7. I could have food poisoning, and my dick is available to you during the entire time. I'm, I, you throw out that vibrator. I had one guy in the 90s before we had cell phones to take pictures. 
he um, measured the amount of inches her vibrator was from the uh, wall to see if she would use it. And then the next time he looked at it, it, he said it was six inches from the wall and it was facing west. Today, it's seven inches from the wall and it's facing north. I know you used it. And then their fight began. So he he feels like he's replaced through sex and through his penis and she feels replaced as a person. Oh. Oh, again, the same dynamic, the warden and the keeper, or it's like the parent dynamic, wagging the finger, like you're bad, you're wrong, feel shame. That's not, that's not conducive to a sexual dynamic. I mean, we all talk about Dr. Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, right? Like the, the context matters, especially for female body people. And these dynamics don't need that. So when you think about the men out there who are listening, who are just like thinking about maybe going to counseling or they're thinking about like, oh, this isn't working or I've been hiding this for so long. What's one of the first steps they should take towards help? First of all, I caution people, don't wait until you're in some emergency crisis situation. You know what I mean? That's so many of our clients do that. I know, and we do it too, I'm sure. But the idea is that they need to go to somebody who's sexually trained and really know that that therapist has some sexuality training. They don't have to be a sex therapist, but you and I both know that many therapists do not have that training. And so then they can't really help. They think they can help their clients, but they really can't because they lead their clients to what they think is healthy for them, not what's healthy for their clients. So I always tell clients, please ask their backgrounds, what specific sexuality training have they had? Mm, yes. And I want this out there. It's by no fault of the therapists out there. Like there's not enough education for any of us. And so we all come to these situations with our own sexual stuff. So it makes sense. It's okay to ask questions of your therapist to see if they're the best fit for you. And if they're not, it's okay to move on. I agree. And it is no fault. I was one of those therapists, even as a sex addiction therapist, I always like to tell people this, there's no sex therapy training zero in sex addiction training. So you're treating people through a trauma lens, thinking that they have trauma and some do and some don't. You're treating through an addiction lens, but you don't know anything about sex. So it's, in my opinion, sex addiction treatment is very harmful and abusive to people because it lacks that training. It comes from that lens of like, there is something wrong with what you like, or there is something wrong with how often you like to do it. Right. Exactly. As if there's some amount, right? So someone says you're having too much sex, who decided that? The partner, the doctor, the therapist? The person has to decide that for themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Quick break from the action, folks. (laughs) Action. (laughs) I just want to tell you about my Patreon. Every week, I bring you guests and Seriously, lots of sex nerdery. (laughs) Help me keep doing that by becoming a supporter. What do you get in return? Cool perks. For real. I am going to be doing shout outs, stickers, a bunch of stuff. So check it out at ericamiley.com forward slash Patreon. That's E-R-I-K-A-M-I-L-E-Y dot com forward slash Patreon. I hope to see you and see more of you by becoming a Patreon. Thanks, guys. When you work with couples, like, where do you often begin with them? Like, teaching them about sex? Like, what what could someone expect if they walked into your office? Like, where they're going to start? 
I always tell couples that there are two conversations that are going to happen in our relationship conversation around communication and the relational pieces, and then the sexuality conversation. And that just because the relationship gets better, doesn't mean sex automatically gets better. And just because sex gets better, doesn't mean the relationship automatically gets better. That both have to be independently addressed. And then we go from there. Oh, the whole system. Oh, what do you mean? Joe, like, we're a whole system. We're a whole human. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, so many couples have shame. I mean, individuals do, but then couples do because they, they're they they're comparing to something they don't even know because couples don't talk about their sex lives, right? So they think, well, we should. how many times should we be having it? How should we be having it? What should we? And I always say to couples, the longer, I've been in this field almost 35 years. You decide. It's custom made. Every person, every couple has their own erotic thumbprint. Yes, absolutely. Talk a little bit about what does the erotic thumbprint mean? So erotic imprint would mean that you have your own sexual desires and tastes and romantic desires and tastes and uh, preferences and behaviors you enjoy. And so I would say that we have a sexual orientation to whom we're attracted, male, female, both, neither, multiple genders. And then we have an erotic orientation to what we get off on, what we fantasize. So one time I had a lesbian client who uh, was an activist, middle-aged feminist, whose primary fantasy was imagining herself being gang-raped violently by a train of straight men. She'd never had it happen. She was never going to make it happen. It was just a fantasy. The only reason she was in my office is she had lost a longtime girlfriend who said, if that's in your head, I can't be in relationship with you because it goes against my political views. That's what our fantasies do. They go against, that's what makes them hot and fun and desirable is they cross lines. And I'm not talking about sex offending lines. I'm talking about there. it's playing with things that have happened to you throughout your life that have become eroticized. Yes. It's playing with power. It's playing with the roles that we keep. I can't tell you how many female identified people have been in my virtual office <laughs> who have been saying like, I am a very high functioning person. I am high achieving I want somebody to take advantage of me in bed. I want someone to take control because they control all day long. They make every decision all day long. Sometimes it worries them, but sometimes they often feel shame about communicating that to partners. Exactly. And for men, a lot of times they're seen as the one who should be the one driving sex, who should be the one leading. And I have lots of male couples, uh, sorry, clients that say, I don't want to leave. Actually, sometimes they'll even go to the internet or they'll have live webcam sex with another woman because they may have tried to share with their female partner. I love what you said, female identified partner, I should say, or even a male partner. And the partner is not willing. I see this more in straight couples where she's not willing to take the lead. She's not comfortable. She doesn't know how. She doesn't want to. So then it ends up that he goes somewhere else because he, he wants to feel submissive and be led a little bit sometimes too. What do you say to some of the couples that come through your door? I think this is probably one of the most common things that we see as sex therapists, the mismatch in desire in quotation marks. Like, what do you usually talk with them about right out the gate? That it's normal, that every couple has a mismatch, sexual desire discrepancy. Even if you, let's say you have a high sex drive and your partner has a lower sex drive and you break up and you go to the next person and they have a higher sex drive than you. Now you're the low sex drive and they're the high sex drive. So it really is negotiating and what I call erotic differentiation. In other words, we teach couples how to exist with differences around parenting, communication, religion, but we don't teach couples how to exist 
with sexual differences. And so that's what I say. We're going to do that without making the other right or wrong, good or bad. Yes. And that guess what? It probably is going to change across your time together. Developmentally, we physically change. Our hormones change, especially for female bodied people. We go through menopause. We're going, we go through pregnancy, some of us. It changes how we see sex, how we feel sex, how all of that happens. And somehow in our culture, we took sex and we make, made it separate. We made it separate from our whole humanness. I love what you're saying. I completely agree. And that happens to men too. Testosterone starts to drop. Our erections aren't as uh, easily available as they always were. I had one client say, say, I have drive-bys, <laughs> right? So like all of a sudden he feels that, okay, it's, we got to do this right now because it won't let, you know? So it happens to men too. Yes. Basically everybody listening, Joe and I are telling you, it's okay. All of it. <laughs> All of it is okay. Even And you know, I, I'm not trained in sex offending. I'm only going to bring this up because even if that's the case, get help. There are trained people, but you don't necessarily go to a sex therapist and please don't go to a sex addiction therapist. You go to a sex offender trained therapist. You must go to somebody who understands this and has empathy and compassion and understanding around it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And folks, those episodes are coming. I want you to be able, I want to have really great people who do that all of the time. Yes, my background is in in sex offender treatment, but I want to have a really great conversation around that. And I think what you said right out the gate in the beginning of the, the interview about how men like only address, only address their sexuality when they're in trouble. What a, what a dichotomy to put them in. It really, really is. And sadly, many people think most of male sexuality is sex offending. And it's so insulting to me because that to me is a microaggression. You know, it's like saying that male sexuality in all of its forms isn't right because it must be a certain way or must sometimes often some people think it must look more like female sexuality and it doesn't. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And we do it to women too. You, you're only this, you should be more like this. No, it's how you are conditioned and and what you, what you get off on is what you get off on. It's not going to necessarily go away. This is a big question I'm about to ask. How do you think it came to be that how we talk about sexuality across the gender identities, but more like, especially in like the heterosexual world, that the sex conversation became so adversarial? Religion. Religion. I really believe that. Yeah. And religion doesn't have sex therapy training. People that are (laughs) organized, you know what I mean? (laughs) Stupid. Right. Oh, I, I, I have actually, I've worked with, um, I worked with some amazing faith-based folks. Like I did an episode on sex and Christianity. I sought out an asect trained <laughs> sex therapist, a person of color, Deandrea Thompson. If you all follow her, she's awesome. She does the page, ask a sex therapist, person of faith, person of color, and helps people kind of integrate these two things that you can be a person of faith and you can reduce the shame around sexuality, that those things can absolutely exist together. I love that. And people, we need more therapists trained like her. One time I had a couple and he had cheated on her for two years. We don't even really say cheating anymore. We say broke the relationship agreement and then had sex with a woman half his wife's age and he, she caught him. And basically he said, I went there because she was willing to do things I didn't think you would do because you're religious, you read your Bible every day, you go to church every Sunday. And she looked at him and she said, 
my Bible tells me that I can do anything I want with my husband as long as we both agree. And you've never come to me and asked that. And he said, well, maybe I want to be verbally abusive. Maybe I want to do power exchange. Maybe I want to. And it's just play. And she looked at me and her husband and she said, I am willing to go there. But as a female, you both need to know that is not how I'm trained. That's not how I was socialized. So it's going to be hard for me, but I'm willing. But he didn't think so because he had a projection on her. Yes. What a wonderful way. I'm so glad that you were able to hold space so that she could say that to the two of you and that he could actually hear that. What a beautiful moment for them. It really, really was. And we can't assume that just because someone's religion that they're not willing or religious that they're not willing and, you know, even in your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you up to these days? How do people find you in the world? I mean, we could be here all day. I know we could. (laughs) I know. Uh, And I love this. Thank you. I love talking about this. And we're lucky to be able to talk about things we love all day long, especially around sex, you know? Yeah, we could just, we get to talk about sex all day. Like I can't complain about my job. That's for dang sure. So I'm primarily a psychotherapist and you can find me at my name, joecourt.com, J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. But I'm also growing with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes online. It's modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. And I joined with them to start an LGBTQIA certification program and a couples relationship certification program. And they do a sex therapy certification. So that's been really fun. They can also find me on Twitter. I have heard of that program, y'all. Shout out to Dr. Rachel Needle and and Ricky and everybody at the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. Like we love them. Very professional, very well trained. Over you know 150 plus videos for learning. Anyways, it's a great program. And not just for sex therapists. This is for anybody that they have CEUs for anybody that needs CEUs. So you could be a medical doctor, you could be a psychologist, you could be anybody and want to come or learn more about healthy sexuality and how to help your the people you are helping access that. So I am so glad that you have joined them and are creating this wonderful program. As far as people finding you in the world, I know you've got a Twitter and a Facebook and all that stuff will be in the show notes. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Pleasure being here. Absolutely. And thank you folks for sticking around to the end. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media, and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the Gram, and Twitter. See you all next time.